Can you test that? Uh, mic check one, two. All right, so I'm just going to let this record, and I'll figure out how to edit it later. Okay. But what I thought might be kind of interesting and possibly funny mm-hmm. uh, is if we just talk through and answer some of these questions that I found online. Um, some of them are ridiculous. Um, some of them are probably legit questions. Mm-hmm. But let's see what we come up with. Okay. Coming to you from Tallahassee, the sunshine capital of the world. This is the Holland and Pick Show, your source for local interviews, tips, and strategies that will help you take your real estate hustle to the next level. Next level. Next level. What have you seen while walking past a neighbor's window? So do you have any crazy stories as a realtor? What, what, I mean, I've, I've walked in on people having sex. Not into the literal, well, not into the literal room, but like we made an appointment, we showed up, knocked on the door, sounded like people were in the house, but couldn't really tell, like calling like, hello, you know, realtor here to show the property. Yeah. Went upstairs and then heard the, uh, uh, uh. oh my gosh. <laughs> it was like, okay, time to go. <laughs> what in the world? Yeah. So these are, these are people living there or the people that own the They were property? tenants. All right. We'll probably skip over that, that one. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. Can I start investing in real estate with only 50 cases? This might be an That's interesting question. Yeah, this might be an interesting one yeah. for our That's listeners. That's a very good question. Yeah. How much money do you think is appropriate to start investing in rentals, for example? Depends on your goals. Yeah, it depends on it depends on your market. Uh, it depends on what type of property you're trying to buy. So the market will determine generally speaking, what the price point of properties are. And in some markets, you could buy a property for cash with $50,000 and own it outright, free and clear, no mortgage, uh, and have a nice income-producing property. If you're in San Francisco, $50,000 might be a 5% down payment. A cardboard box. Right, exactly. Um, you know, you're not getting a lot. You're not getting anything for $50,000 in, in a market like San Francisco. So, it really does depend on, on where your market is and then also what type of property you're wanting to invest in because different properties have different down payment requirements. Let's say Tallahassee. Let's say, let's just use me an example, right? I'm 33 years old. Let's say I want to invest until, you know, I just want to turn my money back over and kind of accrue as many rentals as possible so that when I'm 50 or 60, I can just kick back and collect money from those rentals. How do I get started in that scenario? Do I do I save up a bunch of money, go buy a property, save up more money, go buy another property? You know, how much do I need to put down that sort of thing? Well, the way that you did it personally is a great way, and that is that you buy a multifamily property that you intend to occupy. And by doing that, you can do you can use an FHA multifamily loan, which is only a three and a half percent down payment. And so you could buy potentially a hundred and fifty thousand, let's say two hundred thousand dollar duplex to make math easy, and get into that two hundred thousand dollar duplex for seven thousand dollars down plus closing costs. And you might be able to negotiate the seller to pay most or all of those closing costs. So you'd be looking at seven thousand dollars plus your inspection costs, say eight thousand dollars, and you're into a two hundred thousand dollar duplex where you're occupying one side to live and renting out the other, and you can live rent-free or close to rent-free or mortgage payment-free because the tenant's covering that payment and then live there until it no longer suits you and then move on and you've got an investment property. So let's go to the second property. Fast forward past that. Assuming I was going to stay in the duplex, 
what's the next reasonable move from there to acquire another rental property? Yeah, well, like some of the guests we've interviewed, you could go to another multifamily property, in which case you'd be looking to save up 25% is the current requirement for a down payment on multifamily property. That's going to be a big chunk. That's where $50,000 might not get you what you want. 25%, $50,000 would be 25% of 200000 and you might be able to get another duplex for that, but you're probably not going to get another or get a uh, triplex or quad for that much money. So you might consider other types of properties. You might try a single family property where the down payment requirement is less, like 15%, and the prices are lower, like a townhouse. You could buy a townhouse for dollars $50, $100,000, put 15% down, plus your closing costs, uh, your inspection costs, and maybe you're in it for $20,000. And that $50,000 will buy you two two and a half properties. Obviously, you're not buying a half property, so that gets you two properties. Or you could buy a more expensive single-family home, maybe a $200,000 single-family home, and put 15% down. And that's $30,000 plus your closing costs and inspection costs. So maybe now you're at $35,000 and you've got $15,000 left over to go and put down on an inexpensive townhouse or let that continue to accrue and put $20,000 or $50,000, however much onto the next property. So it really depends on what type of properties you're comfortable with. It depends on your goals, like you said. Exactly. It's a little misleading too, right? Because if you just want to accrue a bunch of properties, then you can accrue smaller ones, but they might not be as profitable as some other properties. So you got to think through that stuff. So let's keep going and see what other interesting questions we find. Oh, I know one additional thing we could talk about. So how do you feel about partnering with people to buy rentals, right? Because that's another way to get more number of rentals, but you don't own as much of the property. Sure. Depends on how the partnership is set up. The partner could be like Charlie Peters talked about in our interview with him, an equity partner, where they are in exchange for 50% ownership putting up the down payment that would be needed to purchase that property. So maybe you're looking to buy a quad and you need 25% down and you're able to obtain the financing, but you don't have all of that money to put down. You'd partner together. You'd borrow the money. The partner would put up the down payment funds. You'd go into that together. And so for 25% of the money, they own 50% of the property. For zero money, you own 50% of the property. So it's a good option there. So it could be an equity partner that way. They could be loaning you the money. You could each be putting in 50% of the money. So there are a lot of different ways you can slice and dice a partnership, but especially if you are limited in means to begin with, but you have a good reputation and you're very credit worthy, then uh, an equity partnership type situation might be a great idea. But you have to trust the people you're in business with. It's been interesting to hear some of the people we interviewed talk about, um, actually I think it was Will Peters who mentioned you know, he just had different goals. He did that a few times and he had different goals than the people who he partnered with. Here's another interesting question. How many rental properties do you have to own to make a good living? Right. <laughs> well, again, it depends on uh, what your goals are. It depends on how you define good living. Do you have $100,000 of student loan debt? Mm-hmm. You need a lot of rentals to sure. make up for right. that. Yeah. Are you, are you talking about just enough money to buy your RV and put gas in it and travel around the country? Or are you talking about placing your current income? I think that's what a lot of people would probably mean by that question. And so then you have to define, you know, is your current standard of living a good living? And if so, then you have a number that you're going to strive to replace and you have to figure out the cash flow on each property. Let's say you're making $60,000 a year. 
and properties cash flowing a thousand dollars well then you'd need 60 properties to replace your sixty thousand dollars in in salary you know being very simplistic in that analysis not taking into uh, into account taxes and the way your income is structured but just doing that simply you might need 60 properties if they're all cash flowing well that's if it's they're cash flowing a thousand dollars a year actually so if they're cash flowing a thousand dollars a month that would be twelve thousand per year and then you'd only need five of those properties so depends on you know what the cash flow on your properties is now they should be throwing off ideally at least two hundred dollars in cash flow each per month so if you had two hundred dollars per month and you needed to get to five thousand dollars a month then you need 25 of them that all depends on what a good living is to the individual and investor and what type of income they're trying to provide for themselves or replace for themselves you're gonna tell me it depends on all these that's why they come and see us in person <laughs> yeah um, so did i do that math right two thousand two hundred a month long story short you need to do the math you need to do the math right. absolutely yeah. yeah so 200 a month times 25 is five thousand a month times 12 would be sixty thousand yeah well here's here's a good one what was the worst infestation you've ever had in your house? Wow. Um, thankfully, I have never had an infestation in my personal home. We are dealing currently in the house we're renting from my parents. Um, we have carpenter ants, and those are outside. They have not come into the house, but they are swarming now, and um, that was crazy. I had never seen that many ants, and I would never seen ants fly. What do you mean swarming? Like a like a, a, like a lot of ants yeah like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ants like in the air uh like hitting you as you're trying to walk by it was pretty crazy but we got the pest control company out uh yesterday and so they took care of it after only two days but it was very interesting and had never dealt with that before i had been in rental properties that i have owned with roach infestations which have been horrendous absolutely horrendous and you've got the larger cockroaches which are a little easier to get rid of actually in the kill and then you got the real small ones which i think are the german cockroaches and those are very difficult to get rid of and i've had both situations but the the smaller ones are particularly particularly nasty my my wife would not tolerate a road <laughs> no which is long. why we recommend having um, pest control on both your personal home and your rental property we had a uh, some sort of like moth looking thing flying to our house the other morning on the mm-hmm. way out to school and you like we almost destroyed the entire house trying to get this thing. I mean, this thing was like a small bird, what? but it was like you know we couldn't get it out, and it was just my kids were. <laughs> I should have got it on video. Um, what can I realistically expect for return on investment on a rental property? So, ten to fifteen percent cash on cash return is appropriate. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's what most of my clients come to me expecting. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable. Uh, there was a time back when real estate prices were very depressed where you could get close to 20, but I think somewhere around 10, for a very safe investment, I think 10 would be satisfactory, but 10 to 15 is is reasonable, yeah. Um, Do you want to discuss how you actually calculate that? We can. Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, well. I've always used calculator before. Yeah, so you, I mean, you really just need to know all of your expenses, right? So you look at the initial investment in the property. So you have to have a basis from which you're operating. So in a very simple example, if you have a $100,000 property and you're investing, uh, let's say, a, just to make math easy, 15% down payment is 15000 And let's say all of your closing costs and expenses to get into the house, inspections and so forth are 5000 so that your total investment is 20000 Again, just to make math easy, <clears throat> that would be your basis, the amount that you have in 
the property and so you're calculating your cash on cash return based on that number so you've got 20,000 in it if your annual cash flow so the rental income received minus your expenses uh, was let's say $2,000 per year well then 2,000 divided by 20,000 would give you a rate of return of 10% so it's just knowing your initial investment up front calculating that on the front end to the best of your ability and that would be actually quite easy to do you know what your down payment amount is you have an estimate of closing costs from your loan officer and then you understand what your inspections are going to be and so you've got your total investment and then you look at the monthly income minus all the monthly expenses extrapolate that out you've got an annual figure and then you divide the annual cash flow divided by the total investment to get your rate of return and then you can decide whether or not to move forward with the purchase whether or not it meets your criteria the uh, the one I've the calculator I've used before is on biggerpockets.com and there's a million of them out there but it basically projects out to the cash flow for you and like the, the equity and all that stuff so it gives you an idea of like, do I want to hold it? Do I want to sell it? Um, at what point do I want to do that? So at a minimum though, you, sh- you got to, again, you got to know the numbers so you can do the math on it. Right. And so the rate of return is going to be what rate of return is acceptable is going to vary from investor to investor and is also going to vary based on what other opportunities for a rate of return said investor has, right? So if you've got the opportunity to invest in a savings account that's earning 2% and a CD that's earning 3% and you know your stock market, which is averaging 9 or 10% on an annualized basis over the last 50 or 80 years, you know, you're going to be able to look at all of your different investment opportunities and compare them and assess your own risk tolerance. I have $100. I have three options to put my $100 in places. An interesting thing Charlie actually mentioned to us before is, what did he say? If you can find a property for 75% of the price, you should always find a way to buy it. I wasn't expecting him to say it was a little different than I have X number of dollars to invest. What are my options invested in? Whereas he, he flipped it and he said, forget how much money you have, you figure out how to buy it. <laughs> yeah, and I think he was speaking there not so much about necessarily your own personal means, but uh, strategy. Right, so a strategy early on in my career was investing in concrete block duplexes, multifamily properties. I actually bought a triplex too, but it was uh, concrete block multifamily. I like that because they were obviously solid, sturdy, didn't have to worry about termites, more or less, right? Uh, ins- insurance rates were really low. They're inexpensive to insure, so that helped keep my mortgage payments down. Tenants can only do so much damage. You know, Fire can only do so much damage, so on and so forth. And so that was my strategy. And what Charlie was saying is that's all well and good. But if you can get a property at that steep of a discount, throw that strategy out the window. Gotcha. Here's another interesting question. How did some of the wealthiest people in real estate create their wealth? We just said that, you know, at least on rental properties, your expected return should be 10 to 15%. I mean, even if you start when you're an infant investing in rental properties, you're not going to have, you're not going to be what I would consider super wealthy. You'll be well off, but you know how do some of these people just amass hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of properties? It's a good question. I haven't uh, studied a lot of real estate investors historically. The people who have a really good source of income, like for example Charlie did, where he could use that to finance multiple properties. I mean, if you're making two hundred thousand dollars a year as a W two employee, you know you're bringing home what are you bringing home thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a month probably, and so if you're living responsibly you should be able to you know throw several thousand dollars a month into savings and you can very quickly accumulate down payments i mean you could accumulate down payments for a new home 
purchase, new investment home purchase every year, really, if you wanted to. So if you've got a really good base salary, you could do it very quickly. Or if you live extremely frugally, you could do it as well. It's gotten harder as as prices have risen. The idea of finding an equity partner too, I think, helps to some extent. But in that in that scenario, basically trading off, I'm going to do the work for the equity and go find the property, all that stuff. You know, in some ways, if you're super talented at that portion of it, maybe you could you know speed up things. And it, it comes down to talent, some portion of it. A lot of the stories that I'm familiar with, like I said, I haven't really read a lot of investor history, but the stories that I am familiar with are often investors who got started in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when your options for financing were much more flexible. When you could have a seller take back a second mortgage and get a bank to loan you 80%, the seller took back a 20% second mortgage, and you got into a property with no money down. You know, those type of real creative options are like you just leverage no your existing available. property? No, no. The, uh, property? The, the seller actually would take back a second mortgage. So if I'm buying your house, I get an 80% loan from the bank. The bank's happy because they have a 80% loan to value. And then you loan me the other 20%. So I'm paying the bank every month and I'm paying you every month. So I've bought this property. I have this asset and I've gotten into it for essentially no money down. And if the numbers work, the numbers work. But those types of options are no longer available. So you used to be able to be extremely creative with purchasing real estate. I mean, when I got when I got out of high school, I was doing the uh, Carlton Sheets No Money Down. Some of you guys might remember Carlton Sheets was on uh, a lot of the infomercials about how to get rich in real estate. And he had this No Money Down course. It was still on cassette tape back then. And, um, and maybe video too, VHS. And he would teach you all of these creative strategies to buy real estate with no money down. And those strategies were available based on the financing climate, the regulatory climate of the day. And because of the increased regulation, especially since the financial crisis and the Great Recession, those options are no longer available. So it's much more difficult to make a fortune in real estate now than it used to be. 10 to 15% is typically better than the stock market in some cases. Yeah, I think the S&P is high nines, low tens over the last half century or so. The problem is people got too creative financing, right? And that kind of snowballed into a, a bad situation. Well, during the real estate bubble, yes. But a lot of that wasn't so much investors getting creative because an investor, a wise investor is going to look at, does this cash flow? Okay, maybe I've got 100% financing via an 80% first mortgage with the bank and a 20% second mortgage with the seller, but it still needs the cash flow. At the end of the day, I can pay off the loans and still make money from it. Exactly. And so what happened during the real estate bubble was that you had an expansion of the credit box, which was so enormous that people who could not really realistically qualify for loans were getting loans. And that's not creative. That's just foolish. You got somebody working, flipping burgers, buying a half million dollar house. Right, right, exactly. And so you had people who, you know, basically the joke was, you know, if you could fog a mirror, you could get a loan. And there were the ninja loans, you know, no income, no asset, no jobs, where uh, they were they were no doc loans. And you were able to just walk in. And the assumption on the bank side was, well, Properties are appreciating so fast that even if we had to foreclose, we'd still be okay. And there were a lot of low teaser rates that increased after a couple of years, which were getting people into properties where they could afford them on the front end and not 
not even not on the back end, but not even within a couple of years. And so the the underwriting standards got very lax. The banks got very lax. So you ended up with a with a bubble. I mean, basically, it was a game of musical chairs where right. So the you know seller A sold it, and then that buyer became seller B, and then he sold it, and then that buyer became seller C, and then he sold you know, and they kept all making money until there was no buyer left because the credit box couldn't get any larger. So that wasn't creative. That was just foolish. Here's another interesting question. So what is the worst investment that everybody makes during their life? So I hear a lot of people, um, especially my age, that are really hesitant to actually get into real estate. Maybe that's better than the opposite, right? Because they kind of experienced at a somewhat young age, maybe you know, 15 to 20 years old or so, they saw everything crash. And then now it's their time to buy a house. And they're like, hey, wait wait a second, do I really want to put this much money into a property? What do you, how do you respond to, to folks like that? Like, why, why are they, why are they thinking that way? Should they be thinking that way? I mean, in my experience, it, I almost saw an opportunity rather than, than an issue with it. But I know a lot of, a lot of people my age are not buying homes. Yeah. Well, you bought a couple of years ago when prices were still relatively low. You know, your, your duplex is obviously worth a good bit more now than it was when you bought it. Uh, and it depends on, when people were having those thoughts. I mean, back in 2009, 10, 11, we were still in the thick of the Great Recession and people might have been averse to buying then because they thought, oh gosh, maybe it's going to, prices are going to keep going down and I'm going to lose money. Maybe prices are never going to rebound. Now, obviously they have. And so if someone's looking to buy now, the thought is not, well, maybe prices are going to keep falling, but wow, prices have risen so much that maybe this is a repeat of 05 and 06 and 07 now and prices are going to fall. And so when I'm having that conversation with people and I get asked that question, probably one out of every three or four buyer consultations that I do, I show people a graph and I have a buyer information packet that I give to all my new buyers. And it includes a graph which traces out the average and median home prices in Leon County over the last roughly 20 years. And so you see, it starts in 2000, you see prices rise very rapidly in the early 2000s and peak around 2007. Then in Leon County, they plateaued for a couple of years before falling. And then in 2013-ish, they started to rise slowly again. But now to the point where if you bought at the peak in 06 or 07 and you held for 10 years up until the last couple of years, you would have seen values fall and then rise back to where they were. Point being, real estate is not a short-term investment. It's a long-term investment. So if you look at buying, even if it's a home that you're not going to live in forever, if you look at it as a long-term investment and you see it as a seven to 10 year time horizon, then you can weather even a pretty serious downturn in values because you have a long enough time horizon. So you'll see values come back and all that time you'll be paying down your principal balance on your mortgage. So you will have equity even if you buy at the peak of the market. And the key there is to make sure that you're still buying within your budget that you're not stretching, making some aspirational purchase where you're overbuying and then all of a sudden a downturn in values where you're upside down perhaps on your home is catastrophic because now not only do you have no equity, but you're having a hard time making the payment. So number one, make sure you can afford it. Number two, make sure you get somewhat of a good deal, ideally. And number three, it's long, it's a long-term investment. Right. So if you're thinking, hey, I might only be in my city for a couple of years, well, then buying real estate probably isn't a good investment unless you're doing something like you did where you're buying a property that is easily rentable, right? In, in your case, ideally so because you're living cheap to free, 
And then once you move, hey, I know there's a market for this property and it's an investment property anyway. It was going to be an investment property for me, maybe not three years, but maybe five years or 10 years down the line. And so I know that built into the equation already is this is meant to be a rental. So yeah. you're in a nice city. It doesn't matter if you move. Exactly. Rent it out. You know, hey, this is close to downtown or some desirable amenities in the city I'm in. And, you know, I'm graduating college. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. It's going to be maybe a couple of years. I've signed a contract at my job for three years. After that, who knows? Um, sure, buy a duplex, live in one side, live cheap to free. Um, and if you don't stay in the city after three years, you rent out the other side. You've got a nice investment and you can go off to the next city. I wonder, particularly for people my age, how much debt has to do with their fear of not Because, I mean, a lot of them have tons of student loan debt. Sure. Yeah, I was going to. I touch mean, on that absolutely the same thing that kind of happened with the lending to people who who can't afford houses kind of mm -hmm. the same sort of things happening has been happening in my opinion mm -hmm. to people who want to go to school it's like right I mean, you can get into any school mm -hmm. as long as you borrow the money and right. pay for it you end up on the outside with you know a job that doesn't even isn't even related to what you studied mm -hmm. right yeah so now instead of selling people worthless houses we're selling people worthless degrees yeah and and a big change too uh, in the mindset for young buyers. I mean, they they are thinking a lot more about uh, lifestyle and about experiences, and so they're willing to have more modest housing accommodations. Maybe just renting a very small apartment or room, even so they can have a lot of experiences. And I think that's in many ways very worthwhile. Um, you miss out on the wealth and equity building possibilities that real estate has for you. But realizing that, you know, the McMansions of the 2000s are not where it's at is a good thing. Um, but yeah, a lot of young buyers are saddled with a lot of student loan debt that they have difficulty repaying. And that goes into how much you can afford. And so people have changed a lot of their, their analysis of real estate and location has been a huge part of that. Um, so what we've seen in the real estate recovery here in Leon County is that certain areas have recovered and even surpassed their values from 06 and 07 and some haven't. And so instead of everything going up like it did in 05 and 06 and 07, only segments went up. So the Northeast in particular, because it's got the best schools and it's the safest, has the lowest crime, uh, that has really just exploded. And the other three segments of town have rebounded much less so. Northwest pretty well, Southeast pretty well, Southwest really not at all. So that's where buyers are becoming much more picky about location and rightfully so. Um, but you need to be more choosy about about where you're buying. Makes sense. Uh, what kind of improvements should one never do to the house because it brings the value of the house down? It's interesting. How much does how much is like you know minor stuff like painting and what color carpet you have in there? How much does that matter? Uh, cosmetic stuff can actually matter quite a bit. Um, there was a study, I think, that the National Association of Realtors published, which said something like landscaping could raise the value of the house by something on the order of tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, it was a huge increase in value based on a relatively modest investment, something like doubling or tripling your investment at least. So uh, landscaping could be a huge benefit to a house because it affects the curb appeal. And that's what people are seeing first when they're approaching the home, when they're seeing the home online. So landscaping is huge. Paint and flooring is definitely big too. You know, I get pushback when I'm going and meeting with sellers about 
painting their home in a neutral and appealing color and they say well i don't want to spend the money on that it's so simple and i say right that's why you should spend the money on it because it's so simple and it's and it's relatively inexpensive um, they expect that buyers are going to be able to look past whatever gaudy or hideous paint colors they may happen to have chosen and that's often not the case yeah, they, they don't they don't no very <laughs> few buyers have the imagination to see through those things now as a buyer's agent because i represent both buyers and sellers my counsel to my buyers is look past these things because most people can't. And so if you do, you can get a deal, right? That's what I call the right thing is wrong. Ugly carpet, ugly paint colors. These are the right things to have wrong with a house. You don't want to have a dysfunctional floor plan. You don't want to have bedrooms which are too small to be useful. You don't want to have rooms which are too big to be useful. That should be multiple rooms. Um, and maybe you say, well, you throw up a wall in between them and now you got two rooms. And sometimes that's possible and I'll advise my clients accordingly. But there are things that are either very difficult or very expensive to change about a house. And there are things which are very easy or inexpensive to change about a house. And things like landscaping, paint, flooring are the easy and, by and large, inexpensive things to do. To answer this question specifically, it doesn't necessarily bring the value down, I guess. I don't know. Kind of a tricky question. I guess it does if nobody can get past the, the 1970s carpet. Yeah, and one of the commenters says, don't lose a bedroom or bathroom or garage. And generally speaking, I think that's true. If you were to drop below a three-bedroom, two-bath, um, I think that would hold true. And garage enclosures are generally very poorly done, and so they can detract from the curb appeal. Talking, Going back to curb appeal, they can detract from the curb appeal of a home. It depends. A lot of times you'll have a, a brick facade around the garage door, and then people will frame in the, the former garage door with some other type of siding. And so it's extremely obvious that the garage used to be there and is no longer. Uh, and that's unattractive. And so that can detract from the value of a home. Uh, so what I recommend for people who want to do something like that is usually to enclose the back half of the garage. Standard two-car garage is roughly 20 by 20, 400 square feet. So if you were to enclose the back half, basically from behind where the garage door open opens to where the opener is, um, you'd get rough of, roughly 10 by 20 or 12 by 20 worth of space, so 200 to 240 square feet. And what that does is it preserves the facade of the home, the garage door. It preserves the functionality of the garage door. It still opens back to where it's supposed to, and you still have the storage that it provided, or at least half of it, but you also get half of it as a room and usually that's enough to meet most people's needs. Most people don't need a 20 by 20 second living room or den or um, whatever they want it to be, office, what have you. And so that smaller space is often um, big enough to be useful while still providing storage and the the facade of the garage door. Um, so you maintain the, the exterior look of the home. Makes sense. Why do old people's homes look stuck in time? Because they are. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think about so up in Thomasville and even here in Tallahassee? There's these really old homes. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about investing in these old old homes? Mm -hmm. Would you ever invest in an old home like that? Sure, I love old homes. Really, old homes uh, are one of my specialties. Um, but there are some unique challenges that come with older homes. The difficulty with an older home is. Uh, the passage of time, and when pe most people say old, I'm, I think they generally mean more than 50 years old. Some people mean more than 30 years old. Um, that's not that old. I'm more than 30 years old, so I don't think that's that old. Um, but a lot of times people are thinking something built in like the 50s, 60s, or older. Um, 
And especially when you get 50s and older, you are almost always dealing with a crawl space. And a crawl space is an area underneath a home. Uh, in contrast to a slab, you have a home, almost all homes nowadays are built on concrete slabs, unless there are certain site difficulties, which would uh, necessitate a an off-grade home, a home with a crawl space, or that that's preferable for some reason. Um, but I just built a spec home on a sloping lot where we built a, a stem wall, backfilled the stem wall, and then poured a slab. So even on a, a site with some uh, slope difficulties or challenges, we still ended up pouring a slab. And the great thing about a slab is it's four inches thick of concrete. And um, unless it was improperly built or was not engineered correctly, it's not going anywhere uh, or unless you have some really serious water runoff or something, which is undermining the, the footers. Um, so back to crawl spaces, older homes were built either on uh, a pier and beam foundation, literally pilings or piers, um, sometimes not even made of concrete blocks, sometimes only of a standard sized brick uh, made into a column which supported then girders and joists, wood framing members. Sometimes you'd have a concrete block stem wall, which is basically a perimeter wall of concrete block, although sometimes also made of brick, um, depending on the age. And then again, wood members built on top of it. So you had the ground and some space, which you could crawl in, hence crawl space, and then these wood substructure members, which are really the foundation supporting members of your home, uh, and then the house structure built on top of that. And the challenges are that you can get a lot going wrong underneath that house with the passage of time, and it really would only take one seriously delinquent homeowner to allow that structural component of the house to deteriorate to such a degree that it is very difficult to ever recover from without some extremely large investment of money. Um, and so when I'm helping clients to purchase older homes with crawl spaces, um, that's one of the areas uh, that I pay especially close attention to, often crawling in the crawl space myself um, on behalf of my clients. But you really need to make sure that that's in good condition because that's that's what's holding up your house. Everything is built on top of that and it's it fits together so that you've got either the stem wall or the piers, then you've got the, the girders and then the joists and then the subfloor and then the walls and so all you know each layer sits upon a previous layer and so if any more foundational layer is compromised it compromises or can compromise the, the levels above it right um, and especially if you have a stem wall foundation that is not adequately ventilated you can end up with fungus which rots out the girders and joists and subfloor and subfloor is really difficult to to repair because it's in between the joists and whatever floor covering is on top of it, oftentimes hardwood floors, and the interior, well, and also exterior framing of the home, which sits on top of it. And so it's this layer sandwiched in between other layers, um, which very is very difficult to repair without seriously affecting other areas of the home. So in a, in a much, much older home, you might even have, and I've seen this recently, I was in Myers Park at a home in the historic district there that had some of its piers, which were just those standard common bricks. And the engineer was not even able to determine if they sat on a footer. So a footer is like the foundation of the foundation. It's typically concrete. Well, it's concrete. Um, what else is, would it be sitting on? 
just well, it was just ground. sitting on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> instead of having uh, a, a hole dug in the ground, concrete a concrete footer poured, and then the brick built stacked on top of the the footer to create the pier, the bricks were literally just on the ground. Just gonna prop this house up. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that house needed thirty thousand dollars plus worth of foundation work. Um, and again, very difficult to, to do that type of repair, very expensive to do that type of repair, but you have a lot of, uh, great things about older homes. Um, and a crawl space can be beneficial too. I don't want people to get me wrong. I love homes with crawl spaces because you have, uh, a plywood or sometimes, uh, dimension lumber subfloor, which allows for the easy installation of real, uh, tongue and groove, nail down hardwood floors which are beautiful and can be refinished many, many, many times. And that's one of the things that a lot of people love about older homes is you do get those 50, 60, 70 year old hardwood floors. Uh, it makes plumbing changes very simple. If you have a plumbing leak under your house, if it's caught quickly, it's a super easy fix. A uh, plumber can come out and usually do it for you know an hour's worth of labor and a little bit of materials. Uh, if you want to make changes, it's easy to make changes. Whereas if you had a leak in a slab, you're talking about repiping your entire house. If you're talking about moving things, you're talking about D- demolishing concrete, cutting up concrete, moving things that way. Um, so there are advantages of the of the crawl space, but um, there are some drawbacks too, and you need to be aware of that. And that's a big component of older homes. Then you get into different eras of building materials that are no longer used, things like lead-based paint, things like asbestos. Uh, and so you have to be cognizant of all of those and mitigate those if necessary. Um, but typically older homes are in fantastic locations. They're very close to a, a city or town center um, because that they started there. They started there exactly, right. and then grew out from there. So the oldest homes are typically in uh, fantastic locations. They've got a lot of charm. They've got often much more character, um, detail, and craftsmanship than newer homes do. A lot of homes built in the last ten years have tried to mimic that old detail with varying degrees of success. Um, but yeah, if an older home were well maintained over its lifetime and the crawl space were in good condition, um, buying an older home could be a fantastic deal and a great, great opportunity. So thumbs up on old homes. Thumbs up on old homes. Just know what um, you're doing. You just know what you're doing. Make sure the foundation, that substructure is in good shape. And then, you know, depending on when it was built, you have to check off all the boxes of if it's really, really old. Does it have knob and tube wiring, for example? Um, I can't imagine many homes have that left. Uh, I'm sure most, if all of them, have been updated by now. But uh, thinking back down to the Myers Park area, I remember seeing one back probably in 09 or 10 in that area that was a Bankman property, and it did have knob and tube wiring still. So you just you know, know the era that it was built, know the building materials that were used then, know what the shortfalls of those building materials are and correct them if needed. Uh, but yeah, I love older homes. What are we going to call this segment? Holland and Pick tackle frequently asked questions. Something like that. Holland and Pick answer the internet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thanks for listening to another episode of Holland and Pick. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating on iTunes at hollandandpick.com forward slash iTunes.